Hi, and welcome to Introduction to Software Engineering. During this lecture, we are going to talk about the software process. But before talking about uh, the software process more in detail, let look, let's take a look at some definitions of process. First of all, if we look at a uh, dictionary definition of process, a Webster's dictionary defines processes as two things. First of all, as a continuing development involving many changes, and second, as a particular method for doing something, usually involving a number of steps or operations. Another formal definition given by the IEEE defines the process as a sequence of steps performed for a given purpose. So we, they add the purpose for a process. These are definitions of process at a general level. So uh, what we need to take home from this definition is first of all the idea that a process is something ongoing and that is repeatable. And second of all that it contains a particular way of doing something. It can be contain method or methods for doing something. And from this uh, we can think of a software process as the way we develop software that should be repeatable between different projects at least to some degree. CMMI, the Capability Maturity Model for Software, uh, that we will talk about uh, two lectures later, uh, defines formally the software process as a set of activities, methods, practices and transformations that people use to develop and maintain software and these associated products. So you, you remember, I hope, from the last lecture when we talked about software in the context of software engineering, that we, by software engineering, don't mean all, only the development of code, but also all related artifacts. For example, documentation, user documentation, technical documentation, test cases, and so on. So when we talk about the software process, we refer to the activities involved in developing all of these various artifacts that are generated when we create software. But why then should we care about the software process? Uh, one framework that can be useful when trying to understand the importance of process is the so-called organizational diamond uh, developed by Leavitt uh, in 1965. It's a very old model describing the basic building blocks that need to be in place for an organization to work well. It says that there are four things that needs to be in place in any organization for it to work well and they are structure, people, technology and process. By structure Leavitt means uh, the uh, organizational hierarchy, the different roles and responsibilities of people in the organization, the organizational culture, management and decision-making. By people, uh, he refers to the knowledge and skills, needs and motivation of personnel. So we need to have knowledgeable, skillful people with the right motivation in order for our organization to work successfully. By technology, uh, is meant the tools, methods, facilities and the physical environment in which the work is done. So for example in software engineering we need to have the right software development tools and methods, the right workstations, offices and so, so on. And finally by process is meant the practices, procedures, instructions that people uh, work according to when developing software. So when we talk about the software process we're talking about the guidelines, the instructions, the methods 
that people use when they develop software in an organization. And uh, while all of these four are very important, today we are focusing only on the process aspect. So let's start talking about the basic building blocks of a software process. You may remember from our last lecture that we talked about a framework for all activities, everything that's involved in the field of software engineering. Uh, we can classify the activities uh, we need to do uh, in software engineering into two basic categories. The first uh, one of which is the basic activities. These basic activities are involved in all software development that we do. And while they can be uh, named a bit differently, uh, the basic idea can be found in all software processes. First of all, we have requirements or specification, then we have design or definition, then we have to do some implementation tasks, do the actual coding, then we have testing, and then we have installation and maintenance. Sometimes installation is also referred to as deployment. So regardless of the size of a project, of the type of project and so on, we would typically have these activities involved at some level. In addition, most projects also have some support activities. These include configuration management, quality control, documentation, and requirements management that we also need to do in order to get our software system working. So while these basic activities can be found in all kinds of software development projects, uh, the thing that will vary is the actual degree of rigor, how rigorously we do this, uh, and the actual specific tasks for uh, the different activities. For example, we might do requirements specification at a very detailed level, in a very bureaucratic and formal way, writing lots of documents uh, and so on, or we might just use simple post-it notes uh, on a whiteboard for managing the requirements. So despite the fact that uh, these would be very different ways, different rigorous ways, more and less rigorous ways of doing requirements management, we still do the requirement specification. So some of the factors that are involved in determining the degree of rigor and the actual tasks would be the type of the project, what kind of software we are developing, characteristics of the project, how big, for example, is the project. Typically, the bigger the project, the more bureaucracy, if you wish, we need in order to be able to coordinate everything. The characteristics of the team, do we have very, uh, very uh, experienced software developers or do we have much novices? And the fourth point here is very, very important too. We also typically always need some common sense judgment. So given the particular software system we are developing, the particular team we have and so on, we typically need to tailor our process to fit. Okay, now let's start looking at some of the basic software process models that we have in our field. What these prescriptive software process models try to do is they basically order the basic software development activities in various ways. So let's start by looking at uh, what we often refer to in Finnish as Tekkarimalli, that is the build and fix model. Uh, in the build and fix model, you essentially only code. 
So you start by coding a first version and then you modify that until uh, the client is satisfied, then you deploy it, move into maintenance, and then when the system uh, isn't in use anymore, you retire the system. So think a bit about any problems you can find in this model. This model, of course, has lots of problems. First of all, uh, we have no specifications, no clear understanding of what we are going to do. This makes it very difficult, for example, in working with a client to have a good bid for how long it will take before it's ready or how much it will cost, which can be difficult for customers to accept. We also have no design stage, so we basically don't plan anything. We plan by coding. Uh, it has been shown empirically that this way of working typically leads to poorly structured systems, so-called spaghetti code, if you wish. So that is uh, a difficult situation. We have no visibility, we don't measure, we don't have any milestones or clear goals. So we have no way of knowing how long into the project we are, how close we are to being ready. As I said, it easily leads to poorly structured systems. So this is not a model that is suitable for professional software development. And uh, that is why we typically need a life cycle model or a more formal software development process. So the first and perhaps most famous or infamous life cycle model is the so-called waterfall model. The waterfall model has taken its inspiration for, from other engineering disciplines, essentially saying that, hey, we as software developers should work the same way, for example, people do when they build bridges. So we should divide our work into separate distinct phases that should be done sequentially. And the logic goes that we first of all should try to understand exactly what we are trying to build. This is something that we can call the requirements phase, which you can see in the picture here up at the top left. Then when we have understood our requirements, which we write down in a so-called requirement specification or in a requirements document, then we verify it by having a formal meeting uh, during which we agree to that the requirements are correct. And what we do next is very important in the waterfall model. We do something that is called freezing the document. This means that the requirements document, after it has been verified and agreed upon, it's frozen, which means that you are not allowed to change it without a very formal procedure with meetings and so on. And all changes need to be dealt with by a so-called configuration control board. The basic idea here is that once we have understood what to build, uh, these requirements are not supposed to change. We essentially try to make it very difficult to change anything that has been done in a previous stage. So this forces us to do a good job in every phase, since changing it later is going to be very difficult. This is at the same time one of the best things and one of the worst things in the waterfall model, as we will see when we look more into uh, the pros and cons of the waterfall model. But the logic then continues. We have specified our requirements, we are sure that they are correct. Next we would do uh, a specification phase where we go into much detail into exactly what a requirement means. We would write a specification document that we would verify and freeze. Then we would go into the software design phase during which we do architectural 
and low-level design. We design both the overall architecture as well as the particular modules, alg algorithms, and so on that we need. Then we again verify that, and when that is, uh, the verification is done, then we turn to coding. So no code is written until uh, the requirements are frozen, the specification is frozen, and the design is done and frozen. Then we implement and test the software. Uh, by test here in the implementation stage, we typically mean low-level module testing. Uh, when we have done all the low-level modules, we might have an integration phase during which we put all different separately developed modules together. Uh, and we also test the system as a whole. We do so-called system testing. Uh, and finally, then we deploy it and go into the maintenance phase. So this is the essential logic. We do each step once and we do a perfect job uh, and verify and freeze the documents. Now in real life, of course, uh, this doesn't happen very often. We are not able to do a perfect job. That is why you can see the arrows here in the pictures going back up to the previous phase or even higher up. So let's say that you in the implementation stage when you do coding, you figure out that one requirement was wrong. What we need to do in this process then is to go back to the requirements phase, uh, have the change requirements, uh, we would change the requirements document, uh, verify it again, then go to specification, verify it again, uh, check that the whether the design requires changes, verify that again, and then go to implementation again. So we would go up to uh, the requirement stage again to redo the requirement that we figured out was wrong. This is designed to be expensive and difficult. So the idea here is that we do a, a good job so we don't need to go back to earlier stages. This model is very heavily documentation driven. Each phase produces a document that is frozen. Uh, as you, uh, I said here, it's also focused on doing the homework, doing a good job up front, and it's uh, very bureaucratic using formal change management. So is this a bad or a good model? Well, as it turns out, it depends. Uh, this model has several strengths. Uh, first of all, it's fairly easy to manage. It's, it's the favorite of, the, of many managers and in particular of lawyers. Uh, because uh, very often contracts are drawn up to state when a phase should be finished and what should have been done by then. So, and, and that is easy from a contractual point of view. Uh, we are also able to clearly estimate the various uh, stages, uh, both with respect to time and effort. So that is why many managers like this, this is clear and clearly structured. If you know the requirements up front, and it's unlikely that they will change, this is probably the most effective model. And the extensive documentation is also a, a big plus. It makes it easier to uh, transfer the software system to uh, other places, for example, since we have a solid set of documentation if we follow this model thoroughly. However, there are also several weaknesses. Uh, the partitioning into these distinct phases can be very uh, inflexible. It's particularly difficult to respond to changes in customer requirements or even respond to the fact that we clearly have misunderstood some requirement. So this model is very difficult to use well in a situation in which the customer, for example, doesn't know exactly uh, what he or she wants. Or it's very likely that the customer will change 
his or her mind. Uh, a third weakness here is that, uh, as you can see, there are very many stages before we actually write any code. So before we, we are, we, they can go months and months uh, before we have any code that actually can give us even an indication of how well the system will work. So we get very late feedback on the actual system performance and making changes then when we have the system built or when we start getting feedback can be very expensive. So when then should you consider using this model? Well, if the requirements are well understood and unlikely to change, say for example that you implement the standard, this might be a very good model to work with. Uh, it can be very good when you have very short, clearly definable projects in which you might uh, uh, just have a very short waterfall, for example, for maintenance. And this is particularly well suited to very big projects, large complex system developments that require extensive documentation and extensive planning, for example, due to the sheer size of the system. This is also claimed that this is the best model to use for safety critical systems. That's typically re related to very strict requirements from approval agencies with respect to uh, documentation and uh, traceability. But the fact that this model makes it difficult to change things later uh, is something that we can see very clearly in this chart, which is based upon some studies uh, from IBM. So you can see the approximate relative cost to detect and correct fault on the y-axis. So one uh, is, for example, one hour. If it takes one hour in the requirement stage to do it, make a change that we need figure that we need to do, it would take three hours if we are in the specification stage, four hours in the design stage, ten hours if we are in implementation, and thirty to fifty-two if we are integration and 200 to four, almost 400 hours if we are in maintenance. So you can see that uh, cost builds up very quickly when we go further along if we need to make a change uh, to the system. This is also the reason, uh, one of the reasons that this model gets so many, much criticism is uh, in particular the fact that making changes is very expensive to use this model. However, uh, that is also if you wish a design criteria for this model that making changes shouldn't be easy. And that is actually based upon uh, evidence that one of the major problems many software projects have are changes that aren't really necessary. So uh, you should be very careful when uh, trying to be very flexible and doing all kinds of changes. Uh, and this model tries to make changes difficult in order to avoid them as, lo as long as possible. And for the situation to which this process model is applicable, that's perfectly fine. However, as many of you might know, uh, the situation uh, that the customer really doesn't know what he or she wants, and it's very likely that we will have lots of changes. Uh, these kinds of situations are very, very typical. And for these kinds of projects, the waterfall model is a very poor fit. So that's why we need to look at also other kinds of software development processes, which we'll do next. The first slightly altered version of the waterfall model that can help us deal with uh, volatile requirements is the so-called rapid prototyping model. In this model, we simply replace the requirements phase by a rapid prototyping phase. Otherwise, the process remains the same. So the idea here is that instead of 
writing a formal and long, perhaps difficult to understand requirements document, we will quickly code a prototype that is done in as quick a way as possible, just to be able to show the customer what, how, what we think the requirements would lead to. So it's really meant to be done very quickly. The technology used for developing the rapid prototype might be totally different than the technology used to develop the actual system. We can even do just mock-ups of the rapid prototype, for example, user interface mock-ups, whatever. Uh, but then essentially what, uh, what, what, what this leads to is the fact that the rapid prototype that we have developed, that will actually uh, be the requirements for our system. Uh, the idea in the rapid prototyping model is that we develop throwaway prototypes. So we are not supposed to let the prototype we develop as quickly as possible evolve into the final system. Instead, it is meant just to be a mock-up, uh, a very rapidly written uh, thing that we can use to talk with the client about the requirements. So in cases where the prototype actually gets evolved into the final system, then that would typically not classify as uh, being done using the rapid prototyping model. Then that would be more uh, the use of an incremental model, which is what we will look at next. The incremental models are essentially the ones that are most used today. Even the agile models that we talk uh, about later uh, typically fall into this category. So. In the incremental model, we will first do a high-level requirements phase. We'll do high-level specification and a high-level architectural design. So we, at a very high level of abstraction, try to understand what the system is supposed to do all in all, and we develop a good architecture for this. But then, instead of doing just a single uh, waterfall stage with everything done perfectly, uh, we, develop, we develop the system uh, by doing a set of so-called builds builds or increments. And each of these builds uh, essentially is a small waterfall in which we perform detailed design, the implementation and integration and tests. And each build or increment might even be delivered to the client. So we essentially let the system grow over time. So the basic idea is that we divide the project into separate builds, the actual implementation. Each build then can add functionality we can prioritize the user requirements. For example, we often develop the most important requirements in the early increments. But during each build, during each iterations, uh, iteration, the requirements are still frozen. This is also something that we can see even in the Agile models. So the requirements are not allowed to live during a specific uh, build, but we can of course uh, take changes to the requirements into account when planning for the next build. So the incremental model essentially uh, embodies the concept of growing a system via iterations. This is often referred to also as iterative and incremental development. So we divide the project into increments in, in which each increment adds functionality. And each iteration build is a self-contained mini-project that contain all the necessary activities such as requirements, analysis, design, implementation and testing. And the idea here is that at the end of each build, each iteration, we have an iteration release that we might release even to the customer. It can also be just an internal release, but it should be stable, integrated, and at least partially tested uh, 
working uh, complete system. Very often we don't release every single uh, build to the customer, every single, every single iteration uh, in product, but most releases are internal. But that means that we at a frequent pace have a system that is working. Very often uh, the prioritization of the user requirements are used uh, are done according, for example, to the Moscow principle. We have three or four categories. We have must requirements that the system must have in order to be usable at all. We have should, that are very important requirements, but not as critical. We have could requirements, things that would be nice, but, but the system uh, would be clearly benefit from implementing. And then we have wants that might not be very important, but we might note them down anyway. We typically put the high priority requirements into early increments, also the riskier ones. If there are something that we are unsure of, we typically try to schedule them for the early releases so as to learn as much as possible. But still, it's, uh, while this model is much, much more flexible than the waterfall model, uh, the requirements are allowed to change during the project, but we are not supposed to change what is being developed in a single increment during that increment, but we only plan f the changes for upcoming increments. This incremental way of developing has several advantages. advantages. First of all, perhaps the most important one is that we can deliver value to the customer much quicker than using a waterfall model. Basically, at the end of each increment, we should have something working that we can show and deliver to our clients. So this is also a very good way of getting early feedback uh, from the customer. And, that and this again helps us make sure that the final product that we developed when, you, that we develop when using an incremental system better matches the true needs of our customers. This also, of course, leads to lower risk for overall project failure. It's very unlikely that the customer will consider a project as a total failure uh, since the client has seen uh, the results of our development for many, many, many times, after basically after each iteration. It's also easier to control and manage uh, small iterations instead of the overall big project. Uh, if we schedule the most important or critical features, uh, requirements to early increments, they will receive the most testing. And finally, uh, the incremental model also typically has uh, positive effects on developer motivation since they don't spend uh, half of the project just writing papers or documents, but they fairly quickly get down to the business of actually implementing the system. So uh, this increases job satisfaction since they and developers in the project much earlier can see the results of the work, the thing they are actually working on. However, uh, it's not all rosy. The incremental development also has some uh, disadvantages. It can be actually more difficult to plan and control the waterfall development since we allow requirements to change. Uh, it, while it's easier to plan each single iteration just before it starts, uh, doing the overall planning for the whole project, understanding how many iterations are needed, how they will be resourced and so on, can be more difficult than using waterfall development in which we have a more stable baseline for uh, what we are planning for. Uh, it's also typically more expensive to use iterative and incremental development than to use a waterfall model if we take into account only 
uh, cost related to testing, for example. Uh, whereas in the waterfall model, we would test uh, each system, each module, basically only once. Uh, in the incremental iterative model, we need to do full system testing for each increment. So we would do many, many times uh, the same uh, level of testing that we would uh, for do only once uh, in a waterfall model. Incremental development might require more experienced staff since we don't necessarily have the exact same degree of documentation that we have in the waterfall model. Uh, very crucial to successful incremental development is uh, the existence of a good architecture. So the role of architects is very crucial uh, in incremental development because this system architecture must be adaptive to the kind of changes that we will have in our project because rewriting the whole architecture uh, in an increment will be very, very expensive and also prone to lots of mistakes. Another problem with the incremental development model is that most software contracts between clients and, uh, 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 and, and us, for example, would be written, drawn up according to the waterfall model. So all changes uh, might cause negotiations uh, unless we are able to do uh, a time and material contract, for example. But despite this, the incremental model is becoming more and more the most widely used model. Of course, these contractual problems uh, disappear if we uh, use the, water, the incremental model for internal software product development that isn't uh, delivered to uh, a single client. So the incremental model is crucial for your understanding. That is, uh, in addition to the waterfall model, the most important basic way of uh, organizing software product development. But as a curiosity, a model that uh, received a fair amount of press uh, was the Microsoft so-called sync and stabilize model. Uh, it is in many ways an incremental model, though the actual practices that take place uh, aren't very uh, typical of an incremental model. So let's look at what the synchronized and stabilized model used by Microsoft, uh, what that actually look like. Uh, it basically starts with the development of a short product vision, just a few pages on what the product should be. Then uh, there's also some early functional specification developed, typically again very, very brief, just a few uh, pages of text. Uh, then uh, each project uh, is divided into three or four builds, so increments. And then we have small teams working on the builds, working with the developers working in parallel. Uh, you can here see that we have each increment has a certain structure. Uh, in the picture here we have divided the project into three development uh, builds. Uh, each of them first has a development subcycle during which features are developed. It has some built-in buffer time. And then at the end of the development subcycle, there will be a release. First an alpha release, then a beta release, and then a final release. You can see that in the last cycle, we had some additional things. We have something called feature complete. That is when uh, no additional features might, may be developed. We have a beta release, and based upon feedback from that, we have a user interface freeze. And then uh, there is something called a code complete, during which, uh, after which no changes uh, 
that to the code may be uh, done otherwise than final debugging and stabilization. And then after that, we have a final release. What is interesting in this model is that it is uh, based upon the use of time pacing, something we will talk more about when we talk about the agile models. So this is a precursor, if you wish, to agile development models in a sense. Uh, it essentially fixes the deadlines, so we know exactly when a build will end, but we don't know exactly what will be done uh, by that date. So what happens is that schedule is inflexible, but content is flexible. So this is a very important guiding principle. We don't know exactly what will be done by the end date. However, we know when the end date will come and then we will have what we have and that is what we work with. Looking at a more detailed level into what goes on in this process, uh, we have the name synchronize and stabilize. So the idea here is that each developer, first of all, is paired with a tester. And, uh, and during the day, each of the, the coders uh, work on their own with their testers. Uh, and at the end of each day, they are supposed to synchronize. This means that uh, all code resides in a common uh, repository, uh, common source code control system, without any locks. So anybody is allowed to check out anything at any time. Uh, during the day, you code on the files you have checked out. And at the end of the day, you are supposed to check in the files. But then at the point of time when you as a developer check in your code, uh, you need to make sure that your changes uh, don't conflict with changes made by anyone else. So this is a manual merge during which you are, you are responsible for making sure that the whole system works even after you have uh, committed your changes to the repository. And this is the way all developers work. The recommendation is that uh, you check in at the end of the day. However, you are free to uh, have your files checked out for a longer time. But of course, that might make merging more difficult for you later on. So typically developers work uh, at a high uh, rate with checking in every day. And then at the end of the build, we have what's called stabilize. And that is when we have do a, a, a freeze for, for the features, and then we work on testing and fixing the bugs we have. This can be a few weeks' time. And what is uh, also important in this process model is that uh, Microsoft uses daily or nightly builds. So whenever uh, you have checked in your code, it will get, get, get immediately tested by continuous integration. So every night, uh, the builds build scripts are run and the software is built. And uh, if the build doesn't go through, if the smoke tests fail or uh, the compilation fails, the coder who is responsible for that gets an honor. And that honor is to be the next build master. And the build master is a developer who spends the night at the office check, checking on the build. Uh, in some divisions, I think it was in the office division, they actually had also silly hats. So you would know that this guy is the build master, that's the last guy who broke the build. So, uh, and then you are the build master until somebody else uh, breaks the build. So it really makes sure that you don't want to break the build because then you get to spend your nights at the office uh, checking for uh, problems with the builds. Okay, now uh, that about Microsoft's model, uh, one self-assignment for you uh, I will post 
an article on the sync and stabilize model for you to read. I do recommend that you read the article. It's well written and it's a good and easy read. So uh, please uh, spend some time on studying this process, which you can't find uh, in your textbook. Okay, so next up, the spiral model. Now, the spiral model is actually a meta model. It's a model that can be used to derive other models. Uh, and it is interesting because it has a particular focus on risk management, something that is necessarily not included uh, in the other models. So let's start to decipher the model. The model, uh, first of all, has two dimensions. It has the radial dimension. That actually uh, is the cumulative cost. So the further off we get from Origo, the higher the cost. The angular dimension, uh, that shows again the progress through the spiral. And the angular dimension is the one that uh, contains the steps included in the spiral model. So the spiral model essentially has four steps. The first one, if we look at the picture, it's the top left quadrant. It says determine objectives, alternatives and constraints. So that's the first thing we must do. That's the first step for each round uh, in the spiral. The next step is to evaluate different alternatives for reaching those objectives and to identify and resolve risks. So this is the main contribution of this model is that it has this clear uh, requirement to do a risk analysis and risk uh, resolvement uh, here in this stage. Then the third stage is to develop and verify the next level product, whatever we had defined that to be. And the fourth step again is to plan the next phase. So this model can be used as shown here, for example, to derive something that looks very much like a waterfall model. Uh, and it can also be used to derive incremental and iterative development models and so on. Uh, but for the sake of example, let's look uh, a bit more in detail into this picture. So we'll start to work our way through the spiral by looking at uh, doing uh, a risk analysis, a prototype one, concept of operation, then a requirements plan and a life cycle plan, risk analysis, prototype two, software requirements, requirements validation, then we develop a plan. We might do a prototype three, some simulations, then we do product design, design validation and verification, integration and test plan. And then we might end up with an operational prototype, do detailed design code, unit test integration, test acceptance and uh, implementation. And then we might continue uh, with several more rounds. However, the important thing is here that for each round, we do a detailed uh, assessment of the current risks we have and how to deal with them. So the spiral model is a meta model with a heavy focus on risk management. It's a bit difficult, uh, basically in the same way as incremental and iterative models are to match to the contracts that we do when we develop software, because lawyers tend to have a fairly fixed view of how the contracts should be written that are typically tied to the waterfall model. Uh, it also requires some uh, reliance on risk assessment expertise that uh, all companies might not have. But in high-risk projects, uh, it's very worthwhile to consider uh, implementing uh, risk management strategies. In addition to the spiral model, there are of course also other models you can look at. There are component-based development. There are process models that rely on formal methods. Uh, there's uh, something called clean room software development, for example. 
Uh, there has been a lot of talk, but little to show so far related to aspect-oriented software development. Uh, but a model that essentially is an instantiation of an incremental and iterative development that has become uh, fairly widely used in industry, and we'll take a brief look at that, therefore, uh, is the so-called Rational Unified Process, RUP, which is closely aligned with the UML, which is perhaps the most widely, most widely used uh, modeling language. So if we look at the Rational Unified Process next, the RUP here, we can see that it essentially consists, first of all, of workflows and phases. Now, the workflows are divided into process workflows and supporting workflows. The process workflows are business modeling, requirements, analysis and design, implementation, test and deployment. And these actually correspond very much to uh, what I call the basic activities of software engineering uh, at the start of this lecture. And the supporting workflows, configuration management, management and environment relate to uh, support activities of software engineering. The group then specifies that each project goes through four main phases. Each phase typically can consist of one or several iterations. We have the inception phase, the elaboration phase, the construction phase and the transition phase. In the inception phase, we focus on understanding what we are going to, de to develop. Uh, in the elaboration stage, we design and plan in more detail what we are going to build. In the construction phase, we mostly focus on building it. And in the transition stage, we focus on getting the system deployed uh, in its real uh, environment in which it's supposed to work. Now, as you can see in the chart here, uh, each phase might contain uh, several of the workflows. So this is, in that sense, very dissimilar to the waterfall model. For example, in the inception phase, you can see that there's a heavy emphasis on business and requirements modeling, whereas you actually might even do some analysis, design, implementation, test some early prototypes, even in the inception phase. And with respect to the uh, supporting workflows, you can see that we build the development environment uh, in the inception phase. In the elaboration stage, our focus shifts to requirements and analysis and design. Uh, there might be some more implementation and related testing in the elaboration iterations. Then we move to construction, and there we can see that there's much less emphasis on business modeling and requirements, though we might still do that as new requirements might emerge during our project. The analysis and design also gets completed whereas there's a heavy focus on implementation and testing. And you can see at the end of the construction phase in the last iteration, we won't even start to do deployment-related activities. And finally, in the transition stage, you can see that implementation uh, gets finalized, testing gets finalized, and there's a heavy emphasis on the deployment stage. And uh, all of these phases might contain several iterations, again, determined on a project-by-project -project basis. The Rational Unified Process actually contains a lot of work products, documents and models that we can develop. Here is a list that we can briefly look through. In the inception phase, for example, we do things like the vision documents stating what the system is about. We do initial use case, use case modeling, an initial project glossary, initial business cases, uh, initial risk assessment, the project plan, overall project plan with the phases and iterations that we plan if necessary, a business model, and even one or more prototypes. 
In the elaboration phase, where the focus is on designing the system, we do detailed use case modeling. We might do supplementary requirements analysis, including understanding uh, the important non-functional requirements, such as performance and security, for example. We do analysis modeling. We do the software architecture. Uh, we might even develop an executable architectural prototype, basically building the skeleton for our system. We might do preliminary design models and a revised risk list. And a more detailed project plan that now includes the plan for the iterations, the adapted workflows, the milestones, and the technical work products that we do, and even a preliminary user manual. In the construction phase, the focus is on implement, implementing the system and coding it. Then we might do the detailed design model, we do the software components, we do integrated software increments, test plans and procedures and test cases, as well as develop support documentation, such as user manuals, installation manuals, and descriptions of the current increment. And finally, in the transition phase, we do things like de deliver the software increment, we do beta testing reports and get gather general user feedback. So you can see that the uh, model contains a lot of, mo of uh, models and documents that we develop as we work our way through the phases. Your other self-study assignment is to go on the web and find some more information on the rational unified process and uh, study to the level that you think you understand how it's supposed to work. And if you have any questions, please join the interactive session on Monday at 4 p.m. Use Twitter or write in the discussion on our Facebook page. So I'm really hoping that you will be active and participate in the electronic uh, communication, since that is the only way we can uh, have an interesting discussion during the course. So that's it for now. Until next time.